so let me ask you a couple questions. Do you find yourself um, searching for a stable, safe environment for you and for your um, loved ones? Do you enjoy working more on a team than you do working alone? Uh, do you find yourself always planning for the various difficulties that life presents? If so, then you may be a six. We are in week six of our series uh, looking at the nine personality types from the Enneagram. And today we're looking at what's called the loyalist. Now they are by far the largest group. Some 50% of the population uh, of this world are loyalists, which is a good thing because it is the number six that holds this world together. Uh, sixes make great friends and spouses. And not, they're not only loyal to people, but they're also loyal to institutions like universities and, and schools and, and churches and, and social service type of organizations. And while it takes a while for them to build trust, once they do, they are loyal to that person, that family, or that institution to a fault. They won't leave. They won't leave because of a disagreement. And so if they don't like the church music or they don't like the pastor's last sermon or, or they don't like the color of the carpet, um, they won't leave. They will stay. They're logical thinkers. They are well organized. They are honest and they are reliable. Their motto is hope for the best but prepare for the worst. And this serves them well, but if they're not careful, uh, they can allow their pessimism to take over. Kind of like Eeyore in uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh or uh, C-3PO in uh, the Android in the Star Wars series. You know, he was always going around going, we're doomed, we're doomed. You see, sixes find the world to be a dangerous place. And what they're looking for is security and certainty. In 1999, Josh uh, Pevin wrote the book, The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. It had chapters on how to do an emergency tracheotomy, what to do if your parachute fails to open, uh, what happens if your pilot uh, suddenly dies and you have to land the plane. This book sold, sold something like 10 million copies. And I'm pretty sure that half of them were bought by the sixes. You see, they know it's a dangerous world and they want to be prepared. Does that sound like any of you? My dad was uh, a classic six. Uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, he had a, a bomb shelter built in the basement of our house. Stocked with food and, and water and other things that we need. I mean, the Russians could have blown up this country my family would have been just fine, okay? We had plenty of food to last for a long, long time. And when my dad saw Billy Milligan, the first person diagnosed with multiple personality and a convicted rapist, walking free down the main street of our town, he went out and bought a gun for every room, had him loaded. I mean, he was ready for any kind of crisis. He became angry once when I suggested that he get a second opinion on a medical diagnosis because he thought that would be disloyal uh, to his doctor. And if you disagreed with his politics or any other of his opinions, <laughs> you weren't just disagreeing with him. You were showing your disloyalty. 
My wife and I, um, we lived in a small village of about 2,000 people. We're convinced that every one of them was a six. Uh, they were all wonderful people, German farmers. But when the, when the bishop set us there, uh, the church made it really clear that they weren't sure we were welcomed. And, and, and they kept us kind of at arm's length for the first couple years. I would call up my bishop like every Monday morning and I'd say, hey, are there any other Methodist churches available that I could go to? Finally, after a few years, they decided that we were okay and we became family. Well, kind of. <laughs> but we ended up staying there for 11 years. You see, when sixes are healthy, they're wonderful friends and family. Uh, a six mom, uh, a mom who is a six, who's a loyalist, they will call up their adult children every single day to find out how you are and what you are doing. Any six moms here who do that? And when you leave, when you leave uh, home for college, your six mom will leave your room exactly as you left it. Nothing changed. It'll be the same. They believe in marriage. They believe in family. They believe in home. They make great co-workers and are good additions to any work team. They'll follow the rules. They'll be loyal to the boss. And unlike a three who can be quite ruthless with office politics, a six would never dream of seeking a promotion if it meant beating out somebody else on the team. Now there is a six that's called a counterphobic loyalist. Now they don't trust authority at all. They eye anybody in a position of power with suspicion, especially if you work for the government. George Carlin, the comedian, was a perfect example of a counterphobic um, six. Also, uh, Gene Hackman, if you ever watched the movie Enemy of the State, he was a counterphobic loyalist. The big, biggest thing they struggle with, their biggest sin, it's fear. A six can be full of fear and anxiety and doubt. For they suffer from a deep-seated need to feel secure. And what they experience is anxiety, uh, a, a kind of vague, free-floating sense of apprehension. And they can't always identify what it is they're anxious about. There may be nothing to be anxious about, and yet still they, f they have that fear. Even when things are going well. Even when the relationships are humming along and, and work is going fabulous and everything is going right with the world, they still have this feeling that tomorrow is all going to change, that tomorrow will be disastrous. So they don't suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome. They suffer from pre-traumatic stress syndrome. Well, Pastor Mark is, uh, is a six as well, so let's hear how this affects his life. <laughs> so Mark, another name for the type six, the loyalist, is the loyal skeptic. How does that fit you? To me, that means that um, when I um, commit to you, I'm going to commit 110%. 
but it's sometimes really hard for me to get to that point until I know that you are also in it for the long haul too. Um, so I might not trust a person until I've come to know them. I might test a person a little bit to see if they're gonna really reciprocate in that loyalty. What is your deepest fear as a type six? As a loyalist, I think one of my deepest fears is that I won't be seen by others as, um, as competent, as dependable, as, um, as loyal, um, that others will somehow, that I won't measure up um, to that in, in the eyes of other people that I relate to. What is your greatest need? To be seen as dependable, for other people not to have any inkling whatsoever that if I say I'm going to do something um, that they question whether or not I'm really going to come through. There's that sort of um, perfectionism, I think, in the loyalist, too. How does the type six loyalist impact your relationship with Christ? For me, um, it, oh, it just seems devastating to think that, um, that I'm going to fail Christ, that I'm not going to be um, obedient to Christ, that Christ can't count on me. And I know there's times that that's absolutely going to be true because um, I'm going to fall short. We all do. Um, but the other side of that coin, too, is just to be able to rest on the promises that Christ, as a loyalist, is always loyal, that I can take him at his word, that he's faithful, that he never fails, he never um, falters. And that is so comforting and something for me as a follower um, to aspire to. Now, there's a, a number of uh, sixes uh, in the Bible. Uh, Esther comes to mind and, and Ruth, perhaps. Uh, but I think my favorite is the Apostle uh, Peter. Uh, he was one of the first disciples chosen by Jesus. He was a part of, of, that, of the inner three, uh, James and John being the other two. Uh, he was so intensely loyal to Jesus that at one point he said that he was willing uh, to die for him. But it is fear that oftentimes drove his decisions. In chapter 14, uh, Matt, Jesus has just performed an amazing miracle. He has fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fishes. And so the disciples begin to understand, this is no ordinary person. This is no run-of-the-mill rabbi. But it had been a long day, and Jesus knew it was time to bring it to a close. So he sends them ahead in a boat across the Sea of Galilee. He dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up on the hilltop for prayer. Meanwhile, the disciples are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and this big storm comes up, and they are getting nowhere. They are fighting a strong headwind that is creating some big waves, and their progress has come to a halt. Now remember, uh, these disciples grew up on the Sea of Galilee. They were career fishermen, so they were quite aware of, of the dangers of the lake. They're experienced sailors. But what should have been a quick trip has turned into the seven-hour wrestling match with Mother Nature. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm going to read verse 22. This is what it says. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side. So the first thing we notice is that Jesus made them get into the boat. And I wonder why Jesus did that. I mean, uh, did they not want to go? Did Peter look at the sky, see some dark clouds, 
come and think, you know what, maybe we should wait until tomorrow. Don't really know, but Jesus made them get into the boat. See, these disciples, they're stuck in the storm because Jesus put them there. And here's a lesson that we can learn, that sometimes we can be smack dab in the middle of God's will and still find ourselves in trouble, <laughs> in a pickle. Sometimes obeying God will get you into as much hot water as disobeying God will. But here's another truth that we need to realize, that so many good things can come out of that adversity in, uh, in our lives and the lives of others. You see, Jesus does not always protect us from a difficult experience, but always provides his presence in that difficult experience. So just because we're doing God's will doesn't mean that we're not going to face storms in our life. I mean, that's the truth, right? I mean, none of us here have been, n nobody here has escaped the negative consequences of this virus going around. Anyone, no one. So what's the difference? Look at verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So their first response in seeing Jesus is, is fear. Actually, it's not just fear, it's terror. They're terrified. They've been fighting for their very survival when they think they, they see a ghost coming at them. I mean, they're experienced sailors. They, they know how to deal with the storm. But how in the, how in the world do you prepare to see a ghost? And so they're terrified. How about you? What, what are you afraid of? Do you know what it is? Here's what the six needs to know. Now, while it's true, this world is a dangerous place, that Jesus is there with us, that this will have a good ending, that Jesus' coming will help you deal with your fear. You see, Jesus came to them walking on the water. The very thing that was threatening to kill them, Jesus came walking on it to reach the 12 men that he loved. Jesus defied the law of gravity to reach them before disaster struck. He came walking on the very thing that frightened them the most, on the thing that was keeping them from moving forward. And so Jesus, in his own way, was saying, guys, the thing that is causing me the greatest problem, I keep that under my feet. And so Jesus walks into our lives, he walks into our sickness, he walks into our struggles, our fears, into our doubts, all those things that cause us to falter, and he says, fear not. He comes walking on it, and he announces, I'm the Lord, I created the universe, I created gravity, nothing hinders me from reaching my children, I am the one who reigns over heaven and earth. You see, what helps the six more than anything else to grow in their faith is to know that in Christ, they are safe. You see, it's a horrible thing to live in fear. Not only physical fear, but also emotional and spiritual uh, fear. Sometimes the devil comes along and he whispers in my ear, you can't do that. You can't make it through this storm. God can't use you. You're not good enough. Imagine the devil was whispering in the ears of those disciples that day on the boat. Jesus brought you here 
Jesus caused this. You're not going to make it. He's going to let you sink. But Jesus comes along and he says, fear not. So which voice are you going to listen to? How much better it is to walk in faith than it is to live in fear? And so Peter chooses to walk in faith. Verse 28. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. You see, Jesus emboldens us when he comes into our lives. Things that we normally would not ever think about doing, that we would, would believe not possible, when Jesus comes, suddenly we find that courage. I mean, just a few minutes ago, Peter is in the boat. He's crying like a baby. And now he's ready to take a huge risk. And he gets out of the boat, and he begins to walk on the water. But then he makes an almost fatal mistake. He looks at the wind, and he looks at the waves, and he takes his eyes off the Lord, and he has second thoughts, and he begins to sink. And fear overtakes him. You see, the spiritual journey... It's not some nice, straight, upward line on a graph. Spiritual journey is filled with twists and turns and, and ups and downs. But man, we've got uh, to admire Peter. I mean, he takes a tremendous risk. Remember, there's 11 other disciples that are, that are sitting in that boat, and they're thinking, oh, Peter, you are absolutely nuts. You are crazy. You can't walk on water. And if I had to be honest, that's where I would have been. And you know what? I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but there might have been a small corner in my brain thinking, boy, I'm sure God that wasn't me. Because look at him sink now. You know, I do that sometimes. Do you? Somebody takes a big risk, they fall flat on their face, and the small part of you is kind of gloating. You ever done that? But Peter steps out of the boat. He trusts in Jesus who has called him to come. And he calls you and I to take that step of faith, to take a risk. Because God, for most of us, God, that is the only way that we're ever going to see a miracle is if we take that step of faith. Yeah, we may fail. We may sink. But at least we had the courage to get out and try it. And the truth is, is that most of us here have failed at something. You may have been cut from a work team. You may have missed a promotion. You may have been impatient with your three-year-old. You may have said the wrong thing to somebody. But Jesus comes to each of us on the water. He calls us to get out of the boat. He asks us to take a huge risk and imitate him. And in the process of doing that, Peter learns a big lesson about trust and faith. But that's not all. Matthew 16 says that they travel up north to Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asks a question. He says to them, hey, who, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some of you say that you're uh, John the Baptist, come back to life. Others of you say that you're, that you're the prophet Elijah or some other kind of prophet. And he wants to know what they think. And so he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. He says, I know. You're the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not re revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. 
And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so Peter has made this bold profession of faith in Jesus' divinity. Now, that would have been no small thing for a monotheistic Jew who each morning and each evening would have said, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here he is professing faith in a man who is God. But he's come to trust Jesus. And Jesus looks into the heart of this, of this sixth, this loyalist, and he sees the rock-solid loyalty of this man who gave up the family fishing business to follow, and he knows the leader that he will become. But that loyalty will be tested. It's now the Passover, and they're having the Last Supper. And Jesus announces that, that one of them are, that, will, that will betray them. And Peter says, they may desert you, they may betray you, but I never will. I will die for you. Oh, but you will. Tonight, when the clock crows three times, you will disown even knowing me. And he does. In the courtyard of the high priest, and the rooster crows, and Peter goes outside, the Bible says, and he wept bitterly. You see, fear got the better of him. And he thinks, how will he ever live with this act of betrayal? To, to betray a trusted relationship for a sixth is the worst thing that they can do. Think of the remorse and the pain and the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment. In fact, he is so ashamed that he goes into hiding. <laughs> but the darkness of Good Friday turns into the dazzling light of Easter Sunday, and their mourning turns into joy. And it's several weeks after the resurrection, and, and the seven disciples, they, they leave Jerusalem, and they return to their homes by the Sea of Galilee, and evidently they're not quite sure what they're supposed to do now, so they return to that which they are most familiar, which they know and love best, and that's fishing. And the Bible says that they spent the whole night out on the lake, but as usual, they never, they don't catch anything. And so they're bringing their boat back to shore, and they hear a familiar voice call out, Hey, friends, haven't caught any fish? And the stranger tells them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat, which makes absolutely no logical sense at all, but they do it, and they catch a net full of fish. I mean, it is the greatest fishing day of their lives, and suddenly Peter recognizes who it is. He jumps out of the boat, he swims to shore, and it's Jesus, and they have fish for breakfast. <laughs> and when it's all over, Jesus confronts Peter because there's some unfinished business there. Verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. 
And then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. What's Jesus doing here? <laughs> He's restoring Peter. He's helping him to deal with the shame and the guilt. He's given him a do-over, an opportunity to, to find forgiveness. He's bringing Peter back from failure by reminding him of his heading, his, his mission, his calling to be a, a shepherd of the flock of God's people. And it's kind of interesting after the third time, Jesus says to Peter, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. And, you know, you read that and you think, what in the world is he talking about here? But John anticipates that and he says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And of course, some 30 years later, Nero would have Peter's hands stretched out and nailed to a cross upside down. Peter, the loyalist, transformed into a courageous proclaimer of the gospel who remained loyal to the end. So how can sixes experience this kind of grace, this kind of transformation? How can they leave fear behind and, and begin to grow in, in their faith? Uh, because the truth is, a six is never going to feel completely safe. Uh, so it really begins with dealing with their fear. So one of the things that you might do is just begin each day in prayer with Psalm 91. Psalm, Psalm 91 is a great psalm to pray when you're, when you're feeling uh, anxious. Um, and then there's a great prayer written by uh, one of the, the ancient uh, mothers of the church, Julian of Norwich. And it's a real simple prayer. It goes like this. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And so when the sixth feels threatened, when, when the sixth feels afraid, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal why and how God wants you to respond. Pray that prayer. Re read those psalms. A very practical thing that a lot of sixes can do is to turn off the news. <laughs> so if you if you've got MSNBC or CNN or Fox on your TV 24 hours a day, seven days a week, turn it off. In fact, that's one of the nicest things that a person who loves the six can do is to help them turn off the news. You see, sixes have this, this, uh, this uh, 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 ability to internalize these messages of fear. So turn it off. Turn off the news. Those of you who live with a six, you can love them by providing the security that they need. Listen to their fears. Uh, remind them of their past 
uh, successes. Uh, you probably think that your six is a pessimist, but they just see themselves as a realist. They believe this world's a dangerous place. So remind them of that security. And then sixes need to recognize the difference between legitimate fear and, and that free-floating anxiety. You know, sometimes when I feel myself anxious and I can't really identify what it is, you know, I go to my wife and I can't figure out why I'm afraid. She can point that out to me. You know, there's nothing there. Now, sometimes there is something there. Sometimes there's a good reason to be afraid. But most of the time it's just, it's just anxiety. And it's amazing once she helps me do that, how that anxiety goes away. And then finally, we just need to make a decision that we're going to trust our life to God. It doesn't happen overnight. It, it, it will enable you to let go of uncertainty. And it doesn't mean that, that you're going to be magically protected from disaster, but it does mean that God is with you. That the story will end well. It means that God is in control of this universe, and God is in control of your life even in those times when it feels like everything is chaos. Remember that God never leaves you, never, ever forsakes you. Let's pray. God, we confess that um, fear sometimes causes us to make bad decisions like it did Peter. God, we thank you how you instilled into him a heart of courage, a man who is willing to lay down his life for you. God, we pray that we would be able to trust you in the everyday things and in the big things and the little things, to know that you're always with us and uh, that our story is the story of our life has a good ending. Hear this, our prayer, for we pray it in the name of Jesus.